Well, I want to welcome everybody here today, and we've got a great discussion that we're going to have today. I want to introduce our guest, who is Dr. Gideon Formakwa, and Gideon is somebody that John and I both have known for three or four years, and we've had the good fortune to know him through some of our roles in, with training organizations. But let me just read a little bit about Gideon and his background, and uh, then we will get right into the content. So Gideon is the founder of Story Warrior Associates Network, or SWAN Academy, a business storytelling outfit that helps business owners tell transformational stories to generate buzz and business. He is an award-winning speaker and best-selling author of The Science of Story Selling. He considers himself a product of Africa, processed in Asia, packaged in America, and distributed worldwide. <laughs> As a kid growing up in Africa, he used to be very mischievous. Everyone in his village said he'd end up in jail. You know what? He ended up in America. Let's welcome Gideon Formakwa. <laughs> Thank you. Doctor Formakwa. Thank Doctor. you. Right? Oh, I don't insist on that. Gideon is better, <laughs> I think. <laughs> All right. We'll go with Gideon for now. Absolutely. Um, I like calling you doctor for some reason. There's just something, <laughs> probably because well, I think it would be cool to be a doctor myself, but I'm not. So, <laughs> when we first met, I wasn't. So this is a new, new, new tiny little feather that got added to my heart. But I, I'm very comfortable either ways. <laughs> what, where does the the doctor uh, part fall into your your overall business or life? Is it I think. Go, go ahead. I think that it, it, it was designed, at least to the best of my ability, just to open up my mind. I, I, I didn't go into the program with the hope of becoming some kind of uh, uh, an academic or let alone, <laughs> as my wife would joke, what kind of doctor without, uh, without a clinic? <laughs> so <laughs> I, I went into it with the hope that I wanted to open up my mind and be able to consume research that I can use and add more value to what I'm already doing with respect to training and education, both in design and in delivery. Okay. So for, uh, Steve mentioned a little bit already your background, but we, we all met, <clears throat> excuse me, in the context of being trainers. Yes. So what are you working on right now uh, business-wise? Is it uh, – I'm guessing face-to-face -face training has – died down um, as it has for most people. Yes, absolutely. Face-to-face uh, -face training has completely evaporated. I, I don't know when that's going to be uh, condensing and raining back as rainfall on all of us. I, I don't know. So what I'm working on is trying to take some of the knowledge that I've been uh, acquiring over the years and turning it into virtual programs that I can either use in coaching individuals or groups uh, and above all, having this content in a format that is easily marketable. In other words, putting them on membership sites okay. and building a small or a large following, why not, uh, that will allow me to continue to disseminate this kind of information that I'm passionate about and I believe that it makes a difference in the lives of those who uh, use it. Uh, business people, uh, people who have an idea, a burning idea, they wanna be able to take it to the marketplace. So I wanna give them the tools to take their ideas to the marketplace in a way that is compelling. Whether they're meeting with someone one-on-one -on -one or they're meeting with a larger group. So is your focus mostly on recorded courses or like live or some mix of that? It's a, it's a, it's a mix of that. Okay. Uh, Mix of that in the sense that some of it I'm using good old PowerPoint. Some of it I'm using as, uh, screen recording programs to record it so that I can easily export it onto uh, 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 online websites or membership websites that can then be used in reaching out to people, whether it's in Asia where I used to work, or in Middle East, or right here in America in our backyard. Okay. 
So I would love for you to give us a little bit of your story because we got a little bit of this when we first met you just Mm -hmm. in, you know, when we would, you know, maybe have a meal together or whatever Mm -hmm. between training that we were doing uh, as trainers. But I think you have a fascinating background before you even got into the training side of things. So could you share with us your, your career before you got into training? Because I think it's fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. That's so kind of you. Uh, before I got into training, I was a, a firefighter. Now, I want to take a step or two back and say, as a little kid growing up in Africa, in a country known as Cameroon, I was what uh, some people describe as a fire maniac. <laughs> in other words, whenever there was a wildfire that was burning somewhere in my village or the neighboring village, I was always named the prime suspect. <laughs> uh, Did you start but, a lot of fires when you were little? I started a lot of fires. Some oh, of them we not, have that in common, unfortunately. <laughs> some of them were not intentionally. Uh, I didn't set the fires to burn people's homes. But I was doing my own little hunting thing with my friends. And then without the understanding that a little fire can grow so big and engulf the whole village and burn down people's homes and property. And so I had a notoriety for starting fires. I also had a notoriety for um, uh, starting street fights. I, I, didn't, I wasn't the kind of kid that would shy away from a fight. I would be the one that the others would say, you go and start the fight first. And I would be the one to... To, to punch first, and it just didn't go too well for me. So my growing up years were very, very tumultuous. I, I, I look back and I give a lot of credit to my mom, who was a widow, raising five children, and I was the youngest. I gave her more trouble more than anyone else. But the reason I say the, I share this element of starting a lot of fires is that when I grew up after college, I migrated to Asia, to Singapore precisely. First to study, and then secondly, I decided to live uh, longer down there and became a fire captain. In other words, I signed on to get trained for nine months to fight fires. And I fought fires in Singapore, mostly an urban setting. And um, so people reminded me that, do you know that as a kid, you used to start fires? Now you're a firefighter. So what goes around comes around. (laughs) And that was very good. <laughs> That's how I got introduced to training because after a few years on the ground, they moved me back from the front lines to the academy where I was, uh, uh, I was trained for nine months to graduate as a captain to become a senior instructor there. So that I got introduced to the world of training and it was fascinating. And so when I finally left that job, that's how I got into training way back in 2004. Uh, but 2004. that's a very long answer to a short question. No, that was that was the part of the story that I wanted to hear more about because I heard pieces of it before, and there's actually a part of it I'm curious about that you and I talked about in a conversation we had months ago um, mm. when this COVID stuff, I think, was just starting, and you had mentioned, were you, was it Singapore you were in when yes. SARS Yes. It? Oh, yes. And you shared some things with me in that conversation about how they had handled things very differently from how we have here. And now that that all these months have passed since then, what are your thoughts on how the U.S. has been handling things with COVID versus the lessons you learn with SARS in Singapore? Ouch. That's really an ouch. (laughs) It's an ouch. And and being an immigrant, a grateful immigrant to this country, uh, I want to be careful how I calibrate my, my, my critique or my observations. I, I want to be a grateful uh, immigrant that admires and enjoys the, you know, the great things that this country has, uh, has accomplished. That's for sure. However, when it comes to COVID response, uh, I am a little hesitant to uh, sing praise tunes about uh, how we have responded as a nation. One thing, though, is America is a much bigger uh, more complex society than Singapore, which is smaller. Uh, however, when it comes to um, the strategic response, I would absolutely give more credit to the uh, to the leaders of, uh, of Singapore in the sense that they, they were very, very methodical at every single step of their SARS response. 
if we think that COVID is scary, COVID is nowhere as scary as SARS was because there was no playbook. For a long, long, long time, there was no such life-threatening uh, 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 disease as SARS was. So SARS was really scary. Uh, but I can say with certainty that I observed the leaders on the front lines and the way that they, they plan at a smaller community level, at a national level, organizationally, the support, the materials, uh, the, dis, uh, the, 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 the delivery of things like PPEs, we are talking about a very, very, we, we cannot compare them. We cannot talk about the effectiveness and efficiency of the two systems. Yes, America is a big country, uh, uh, but I would say in a, in, a, in, in a nutshell that their response was far more effective, far more organized, far more methodical than what I've seen out here. Uh, give you a quick example. The way that the, the front line or the first responders are treated out there. I was still a firefighter when SARS uh, broke out. It's very different from what I observed here when I speak with uh, uh, police officers when I speak with nurses uh, but again these are different systems and I think we, we have to honor them the, the way that they're designed they, they serve different purposes you say it was very different how was it different were they did they just have better equipment or better information or training they had better information dissemination better organization and delivery of supplies like PPEs, like um, making sure that people who get sick get to be quarantined. And mm. as far as installing uh, cameras so that they don't violate their quarantine orders. And if you were to violate that, there will be a lot of public shaming because you are, you are, you are bringing a, 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 a something from your home into the public, you're endangering the lives of the entire public. In other words, because you're down, you want the whole community to be down. That was something right. that was certainly not encouraged at all. Mm -hmm. And I also recall that the distribution of masks, there was no question about how many are available. There was no question about um, the consistency of, of, of delivery. Nobody had to go buy them, except, especially if you're in, uh, in the front lines. No, not at all. And our building complex, where we work with maybe a few thousand people, had to be structured in a way that uh, Team A and Team B never get to interact. Mm. Why is that so? So that if Team A, somebody's infected in Team A, they don't cross-infect someone in Team B. In other words, if Team A is down, the continuity of the organization, the continuity of Right. My uh, of the civil defense or police should not be compromised. In other words, there should always be continuity. Just because one person is down doesn't mean the next person should be down also. So the director was like in team A, the, the assistant director was in team B, and that was split all the way down. Part of my team as a fire captain was taken away from me to go serve food to the people who were in quarantine. Uh, some of them were serving 24 hours. And they had PPEs. PPE was not an issue at all. So I really uh, would say um, we've come a long way in the U.S., but we could still do better, especially with issues like uh, uh, people who are supposed to serve a quarantine. Some of them violate. Some of them are even questioning the effectiveness of masks and so on and so forth. But again, I am aware that... Um, the, the right to speak up is one of the intricate parts of American society that ha, ha, have contributed to making America what it is. So I say that with, with a bit of uh, uh, caution. So speaking of speaking up, one of the things about you that I wanted to talk a little bit about, maybe, maybe talk a lot about it. So it's up to you how much you want to talk about it. Your storytelling even yes, just in the intro that you sent us, when I read your intro, yes, sir. I thought, man, I, brevity has always been something I've, I've worked <laughs> on and still need to work on. <laughs> but your intro is so well-written and so tight. And you, you've mentioned several times you're an immigrant. English is, is not your first language, right? Far from me. And, and yet your writing is much better than my writing. I was born and raised and educated uh -huh. here. 
What is it that got you so into the storytelling part of things? Because your, your training, everything that I've talked to you about about your training has a lot of this storytelling backbone and framework to it. How did that come to be from a fireman to the trainer and then this big emphasis on storytelling? Wow, that's a fantastic story, John. Thank you. But I, I think that I, I, I wouldn't... <laughs> I would argue that my English is not as good, no, not anywhere close to uh, being as good as yours. Uh, because I didn't speak English maybe until the age of 14 or 15. The community in which I was raised, we speak my mother tongue, which is a language called Meta. And that's what our parents speak. That's what everybody speaks. Now, when you start to go to school, you learn both in French and to some extent English. But people look at look down on English. And, but there's also another lingua franca called Pidgin English, which is a mixture of French, English, and the local languages, which is what everybody thrives on. And I love that. So I would argue that for, for a long time, I thought I was far, far better in French. Uh, but I've also come to realize that I would not be able to make a living unless I can improve my ability to uh, communicate better in, in English. So that started, I started to, input, to put more emphasis on learning the language and also learning how to write or learning how to express myself in a way that comes across as um, fresh, as interesting, as engaging. But I would have to say, I, I give so much credit to many, many uh, mentors that I've worked with in Asia, mentors that I've had here in the U.S., and a lot of investment, a lot of personal investment and time in just getting to be familiar with the language and taking it to the next level. But what really brought me into storytelling was in 2003 or four, when I started training at the academy, I noticed that, first of all, the topics were training on how to be things like hazardous materials, how to be things like uh, building safety, had to be topics like uh, chemicals. So they were very dry. And you could stand there in front of these fire, young firefighters and you speak and they're yawning. Mm. <laughs> you speak and they're looking out the window and praying that it should be lunchtime so that they can get out. And, <laughs> and then Navy officers who were coming from, uh, some of them had been at sea and they're coming for a refresher. I just felt like <clears throat> it wasn't, good at all, it wasn't going to be in the interest of uh, the organization or me to be the guy that teaches and people are yawning and looking out the door. However, we were limited from using stories. The, 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 the mantra was get to the point. Yes, the mantra was get to the point, get to the point now. Did they no look down on nothing. stories? Yes, it was okay. like there, there was people had a strong resentment or sort of like it, was, it wasn't the right thing to it wasn't encouraged, to, to put it uh, in, a, in another way. But I noticed that whenever I sneaked in a little story, oh, my goodness, people wipe their eyes. They, they, they look out. They look yeah, up at me instead of looking in. out the window. So that got my attention. So at every single time that I could, I would sneak it in. Whether we were training inside the classroom or outside in the training uh, garages or in the training halls that were outdoors. And I noticed it was more like a little uh, a spice or a little vice. It's like a, a prohibited substance that if people <laughs> sniff a little bit of it, they got a little bit more they comfortable. They wanted a little more. Yeah, they sit up and they look. And first I spoke with an accent. So initially I thought it was an accent. But then later I realized they were not, what they were listening, what they were tuning into was the story. Not so much uh, the accent or the fact that I looked different. But the turning point came in 2000, and I think 2004 or so. I went to take part in a speech competition. And it was my first time ever just joining a, a speaking, public speaking organization. And uh, Toastmasters, you may know about them. Mm -hmm. And I joined the contest within my first few months. And I spoke. I think I came up like second or third position. So one of the ladies who had been inside, very seasoned, she had been organizing world championships of public speaking for universities all around the world. She pulled me to the side and said, if you want to do well next time, I think your storytelling could be good. You, could, you can improve on that. That's the magic. 
And then another guy pulled me to the side, a guy by name Wei Kun said, if you want to do well, look at this guy called Shenton Singh. He's a good storyteller. If you want to do well, do, do whatever he's doing. So I had now a model to copy. That's when I discovered the power of storytelling from this guy called Shenton Singh, Professor Kong, Wei Kun, and the other guys. And then I started to put more attention into it. So November 2003, I bought my first book on storytelling. And it was A Leader's Guide to Storytelling, written by an Australian guy. And that book totally changed the course of my life. And from there, I just discovered a new world. From that book, I've gone on to read maybe over 100 other books on storytelling, taking workshops oh, in Asia, yeah, over here, everywhere. Yes, I have driven eight hours from Reno, Nevada to Las Vegas, Nevada. Eight hours one way just to take a storytelling workshop from a lady who is an executive coach. She charges wow. like $4,000 per hour. I couldn't afford $4,000. I paid $1,500. I sat at the back of the room and uh, I did that twice. The second time I had a ticket and people asked me, was it worth it? I said, absolutely, it was worth it. I had a, 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 dry, a, a traffic ticket. So in essence, it's been a progression from discovering its power in the classroom, teaching police, fire, narcotics, uh, prisons, Navy officers, to discovering that it is a magic tool in corporate setting. It's an absolute magic tool that you can perform magic with it in a classroom or even in growing a business. Every now and then I get a call from far, far, far away. Somebody either saw a video or heard, got a referral from someone else. What are they talking about? They're not talking so much about me. They said, I heard about that story. Can you tell that? Can you share that story with me? So it is definitely a spice that we need, all of us need. So I totally agree with you on the power of stories, but it sounds like it somewhere before all of these hundred books and training and mentors and all of that, there was something, was it just intuitive to you to, to use stories? Hmm, that's a great question. Ah. Maybe, maybe. I don't know if it was exactly intuitive, but I know that I've had to push myself to learn the nitty gritty of it. I've had to really, really, really push. Like if you can drive eight hours, one each way, that means total 16 hours just to listen to someone who has expertise in this. You, you just know that you're crazy about the subject. Yeah, it's, I was um, just going to say that's, that is kind of crazy. Yes. That it's, it's, and it's, the first time I had to do that, my friend was supposed to come with me. He backed out of it. And I ended up going by myself. So looking back, I would say that maybe there was a small knack of it. Uh, probably because, first of all, I grew up in a culture that is very steep in, in storytelling in Africa. Ah, uh, our okay. parents teach us through stories. My mom could not read or write. So I would say the reason I never became a smoker, the reason I never smoked marijuana or pot or anything was because my mom use very <laughs> crazy, dangerous stories about other kids that smoke marijuana and got crazy and lost their way in life. She used just the power of story to scare me out of thinking about any narcotic or anything that could knock me off. So I, I would say, yes, I grew up in a culture that was deep in storytelling. Maybe a little bit of that was uh, transmitted to me, but I didn't discover it until I was well into my 30s when I was living in Asia. Do you have a favorite story about using stories in business, either your own story that about you or a client that maybe you, you taught? Is there any that stick out to you? Oh, yes. I think over the years, um, one of the stories that I've not felt quite comfortable telling uh, has been the one that people tend to ask me a lot about. They'll say, can you tell that story again? Uh, it's a story about me. Uh, I call it shoeless, clueless, and hopeless. And why? Mm. Because I had my first pair of shoes at the age of 10. Oh, wow. Thereabouts. And this story I shared somewhere in Hong Kong, and I shared somewhere, I've shared it many, many times in Singapore, in Malaysia, Indonesia, and every now and then somebody will say, can you tell us the shoe story, uh, the, the shoeless story? Even in here in, 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 in America, in Reno, Nevada, I did a presentation for VA, 
And the, 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 the meeting organizer said, we've heard about your shoe story. We want you to tell that story. And um, that's been a favorite to the audience. Not so much a favorite to me because it really, it raised me in a very, in the most modest way. Like you, you're going to the market with your mom, hoping that uh, this precious, this, this item called a, shoe, a pair of shoes that you've been waiting for it for so long, that you're going to get it. You've waited for so long, and she has promised you for so many years. You carry a huge basket on your head. You get to the market. You sell all the items, and now you're salivating that this precious pair of shoes is going to finally become yours. Guess what happens? She could not afford it. She bought, she bought some, uh, some, some items for the kitchen. She bought some items for school. She bought some old used books for me. And realize, oh my God, I don't have enough to buy your pair of shoes today. We're gonna save another two or three more weeks before we can afford it. So I broke down crying in the market. I mean, with people passing all over, strangers. And that scene has been captivating to some audiences. To the point that a young banker in Singapore wrote to me, I have spent a lot of time uh, self, she put it as, uh, in self-blame, and she, she thought that her life was worse off. But when she listened to that story, she realized, oh, my life may not, may not, may not be as bad as I thought. Uh, I can't quite find the, find the exact words she used, but uh, if I can remember it, I'll share with you. But it, it, it really struck a chord with me, like, oh. <laughs> Do you still share that story with clients, or is that just something that if it comes up, you would... Share. I, I, sh I share it. I, I've come to realize that it's one of what they call a signature story. Because I got to be booked, to, I got to, to, to get a booking to go to a country known as Brunei Darussalam, which is a very, very wealthy, uh, oil-rich uh, sultanate in Southeast Asia to do a presentation there twice. And the guy that booked me said, uh, we heard about your shoeless and clueless story. Can you make sure that you share it with our audiences? So he requested it, I shared it. But I seldom put it out there because it's very, very humbling to tell the world that your mother made less than a dollar a month. Uh, to tell the world that you had your first pair of shoes at, at, at the age of 10. But when I'm speaking to younger audiences, I bring it up and I tell them that just because you're shoeless today doesn't mean that you'll be shoeless tomorrow. Because I tell them that I believe that I've become Mr. Shoesessful. <laughs> in the Say sense that, that shoe successful, shoe successful. Because if you look into <laughs> <love> my, <laughs> because if you look into my uh, uh, dressing room, you you realize that I have more than twenty pairs of shoes. And I tell them, if I want to have more than fifty, I can afford it. But I ask myself, how many pair of shoes can I wear at a time? And it makes sense that I can only wear one pair. So it's not about the shoes, but it's about the lessons that I've learned from on from that journey to getting my first pair of shoe and getting the 20th. It's about sharing the lessons from that journey, from going from shoeless to successful, that I want to empower other people to look at their own circumstances and say, we may not be financially rich today, but if we continue to work hard, pursue our journey, we could get to whatever we're we are pursuing. So it's a client favorite story. It's not so much mine. My, my I have my own favorite, which, <laughs> which is a different... Uh, Absolutely. Gideon, let me just ask you one question about kind of your business itself. Where do you think most business owners or just business people in general falter when it comes to storytelling? What's, what's the thing that most of them mess up, screw up, don't get right when they try storytelling? That's a cool uh, observation. Uh, you, 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 you may have observed this too, like I have, that some business people when they want to tell a story, they, they announce. They start by announcing, let me tell you this story. For the adult brain, don't do that. For younger audiences, I say from first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, do that. Anything more than that, don't announce it. Sneak it right in. And I, I promise I can give you this uh, video clip that I developed recently. You can share this with the, the listeners of this podcast. Uh, this video clip talks about five different mistakes that I observe business owners making in the course of sharing their stories. And the first one is they announce that they're going to tell a story. Uh, the research shows that 
culturally, there might have been some missteps that have made people to be a little bit resentful of someone announcing a story. But if you jump right in and tell it, they enjoy it transformationally, but don't tell them. So what can you do? For a business person, just say, oh, um, last week I had a, an interesting experience which I want to share with you. Remember, last week could be last month, could even be last week, it could even be last year. But what you're doing there, that's just a, 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 an intro. It's, it's just a, it's a segue into that story. Or you can ask them, have you, did I, last time when we met, did I mention to you uh, what happened to me when I went to Abu Dhabi in United Arab Emirates? And they say, no, that's an entry there for you to sh share the story about going to Abu Dhabi next to Dubai, arriving there at midnight and not having a hotel. So this is a carefully constructed story that I have crafted, but I use that intro to draw them in. And another mistake that I see people making is that they, they tend to um, they tell stories in, a, in which they make themselves the hero. The goal of the story, especially for business people, should not be to make yourself the hero. Make someone else a hero. You are just a protagonist. You are just the one that's going through the rounds. The person that finally sets you free the person that gives you the, the, the breakthrough should be a little unknown, unsung hero. That person could be your mentor. It could be a parent. It could be a child. By shifting that spotlight away from you, you come across as humble. You come across as relatable. You come across as unassuming. And audiences enjoy that. And so that's another mistake that I see uh, people making. A third one is they use what I call cosmetic storytelling. In other words, it draws stories from the, from the web. Everyone probably has heard or seen that another version of that story. That's not authentic. So something about you that you went through, something about your daughter, something about your son, something about your wife, something about somebody else that you experience, that is a far more co coherent, a far more authentic piece than one that you, you grab from the web, which is cliché. So I promise I'll send to you this video, which you can send along with um, the, the podcast to people that are interested in looking at different ways so I don't take too much time. Awesome. Well, speaking of that, at some point, I, I got to get you to tell the whole shoeless, clueless, hopeless story. <laughs> we'll, do, we'll, do, we'll do that another time and maybe link yeah. to it. But That'll we, be we cool. can't That'll tease be... such a signature story without, without at least giving them an opportunity to hear it at some point. Anytime, um, I'll, be, I'll be delighted to, to revisit that story and I will tell an updated version now because I've not told it now probably for over a year. Uh, I'll be happy to, to do an update version of that and maybe we'll find a way of linking it to COVID. Oh, interesting. Mm. Who, what, what are the types of businesses or, or maybe, I don't know, uh, tell us a little bit about your clients because as you're talking and telling some of these, these stories, I'm thinking you, you started by taking really, really technical dry information and engaging people with stories, which is something I've always struggled with. I come from an accounting background yeah. and all, all the people that I started teaching were exactly the same as like what you're talking about. So, and I experienced what, what you were talking about, how they resisted stories. Mm -hmm. So I would think that that would be a perfect audience for you. People that are very technical but what have you found are audiences that are either most receptive to what you have, need what you have the most, that maybe you've worked with the most, or any, any of those things that are like sweet spots for you? Okay. Um, in Asia, most of my clients were corporates. In other words, corporate executives that uh, could be architects, could be accountants, could be financial planners, could be engineers. They were, they were flogging into my uh, storytelling programs very much. And the, the, the way that I delivered there was a little bit different. I worked mostly with training houses, which in turn sold their programs to people from different fields. So I would sometimes have telecommunication engineers 
who would question me, how do you use uh, storytelling in uh, sharing data in a way that's compelling? And then on other days, I'll have architects, I'll have teachers, I have community engagement um, managers. So it was very much, um, I would say, uh, corporate executives. Okay. Uh, also spies with some business, very high-end business owners who uh, wanted to improve the stories of their technologies that they had invented and wanted to take to the marketplace. I had some very good clients who were inventing things like inks, industrial inks, and they'll come to my workshops and say, okay, but let's, let's take it beyond the workshop. If I want to humanize this bottle of ink that I'm producing, how can I humanize it in a way that people would listen to me at a trade show and not forget me? So that was Asia, mostly corporates. Here in America, I've not done a very good job of working with the corporates. That has not panned out very well. I don't know why yet. I'm still, I mean, I'm in the, I mean, in the throes of identifying why. But nonetheless, I've done uh, like uh, programs for universities, guest lectures, which I will not, ex I will not classify as corporates, although that, that has given me some business. I go do a, 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 a guest lecture at a university for adult learners. And then from there, I get consulting work or contracted to do programs for uh, organizations. In US, I've tended to have more business owners, uh, people in real estate, people in, in insurance, people in uh, uh, pharmaceutical uh, industry who are owners of their businesses. So I'm trying to capitalize on that and I'm seeing some very good resonance because I'm getting people from California that I've never met. They're calling me up and we're getting to work. So I'm seeing some resonance there. How are they but finding you? Some have come through referrals. Okay. Uh, some have come through um, our subtle online promotional program through videos, through uh, LinkedIn marketing that we're beginning to steep our feet very deep into that now. Speaking of marketing, when you were describing the storytelling um, with like with new products, mm -hmm. that, that sounds like that would be a great niche for you to help people with like branding and, mm -hmm. and helping them craft like campaigns for mm -hmm. these, you know, technical products that maybe are hard to understand where a story yeah. would help especially well. Have you done any of that type of work? Not so far in U.S. I've not hit the, 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 the sweet spot in that area yet, but I am very convinced that sooner than later, I would probably run into one of those. This morning, I had a very good conversation with a lady who manages a high-tech um, organization. And so she's thinking of bringing me in now to work with their leaders and with uh, people who have new technologies they want to take to the marketplace. So we're beginning to look at how this could uh, evolve into next year. So I think that is just a first step, but I'm really investing a little bit more time in trying to understand what is it that I'm missing in terms of working with corporates uh, in defining or in marketing products, humanizing products that are otherwise very, very um, not, not relatable. So I want to yeah, like soften technical. the product. Yeah, I want to be able to soften the products with, with stories. Right. Yeah, one of the areas that I would think um, could use a lot of help with that is financial services. Yes, indeed. Um, that's an area that Steve and I have both worked in, and I don't know how many people I've seen try yes. to explain some basic concepts to people, yep. and they go down these rabbit holes of explaining things very technically, mm -hmm. and you know they'll mm -hmm. pull out an investment prospectus and go through all these details, mm -hmm. and most people's eyes glaze over, and you realize yep. uh, they're not an accountant or an engineer. They don't want all that. Yep. They want something simple like the rule of 72 or some kind of a story. That's true. They can easily relate it. And I think there's a gap there in the market in a lot of industries. There is um, a gap there. There is a gap. And I'll share with you what I just observed in the last three, four months. My, my wife works in medical services, but she has taken great interest in insurance, annuities, and those kind of... Uh, uh, that industry, which is very fine and uh, immaterial, but also very technical. So she has encouraged me and I've taken an insurance license too. And I'm learning a lot. I got certified 
But what I've been doing with her in the last few weeks is whenever she's going to present to a client, I've always told her, keep away the PowerPoint. Or if you have to do a PowerPoint, do just three, four, five slides. And she's been amazed that I was able to suggest to her how to condense many slides into one single story and just warm up the client to just listen because when you rush them to the computer, they feel like you're trying to rush their hand to the table to sign something. Mm. So I'm telling her, take a step back. Give this person some time to, to, to get acquainted with you, with, with, with the concept. Share a story of uh, someone that you've heard. Or even your personal story when you suffered a medical uh, crisis and let them warm up with that. Then you can progressively then move them to the point of saying, can I do an illustration that could help you see how your money would grow? So I'm telling, uh, I'm sharing with her how to dial back before you dial in. And she's beginning to see some results and she's fascinated by it. But I hope that six months from now, we could have a very different conversation because myself, I want to dip my feet into this area and do a little bit more. So hopefully I'll be able to find ways that I can help them, not as an outsider, but as someone who knows what an annuity is, who has written an annuity plan or annuity policy, and who is also able to use that information to relate to someone else who is thinking about that or who's thinking about a rollover or thinking about a 401k. How do you do a rollover? What kind of stories can you use to illustrate the power of a rollover that is done in time and not uh, when the economy is uh, upside down? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're making me think about a book that I have it on my bookshelf somewhere. I think it's called Storytelling for Financial Advisors. Oh, interesting. And I need to go check that out. It's a good book, but I think with your background, you would probably find it very rudimentary. It does have a collection of stories in the back, but mm-hmm. I don't know. That the handful of stories that, that I've heard you tell are, are much mm-hmm. more engaging. Um, nice. But the way you, you use those stories to break technical or dry topics mm-hmm. down, I think would really lend itself. I think there's more of a gap probably in certain industries yeah. because I know, like I said, I found like with accountants, for example, yeah. I think – there's some kind of a negative association with stories like that's just for entertainment, <laughs> right? Leave the stories that, at home. True. That's you know, true. They want to see a report, a graph, yes. a chart, a PowerPoint. Yes. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And a lot of times you know, a graph or a PowerPoint does tell a story. Yeah, I mean, a picture know, sometimes can tell a story. Go ahead, Gideon. Yeah. You know why that is so? The school system, in fact, Thousands of years ago, they understood, the, the, the Greek, they understood the power of story. But they also understood that it is so powerful that it can easily allow us to take advantage of someone. Mm. So they started to stall the growth of this in It's like the double-edged circles. sword. Yes. It works so, so well, it, they, they wanted to be careful with. Yeah, they wanted to be careful with. So yeah. over time as we uh, grew more towards natural sciences, they started to say, show me the facts, show me the evidence. And so story kind of got relegated to the side. But there is an incredible wealth of new information now from neuroscience that shows how the, the, the human brain magnetizes or it, 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 it comes alive when a story is being told. So yes, if we can avoid using the word story, we jump in, we say it's an experience, we say it's an occurrence, they wouldn't know. We're using it in that case as a Trojan horse. And we use it as a Trojan horse. In other words, it's right there. They don't know that it's existing there. If you do a good job, you can tell a story and somebody would perspire. And someone's heart rate would increase. And scientists have done that. You know, I got fascinated by story science, which, is, which eventually became the, the, the topic for my book because there's a guy in California called Dr. Paul J. Zak. Oh, there you go. There you got to come. Thank you. <laughs> we'll come back Paul to Paul J. Zak, who studies storytelling at a molecular level. And he would draw blood samples. And he realized that this thing affects our brain and it changes our hormones. In other words, you could perspire more, you could breathe more, you could, 
You could be depressed. You could be excited through the power of story. So I would agree with you that there is a gap. And that gap, unfortunately, not everyone has spent a lot of time digging into the, the micro-atomic level of it that can share it well. When I started out, and to be fair to others, I only look at the story act. I only look at the artistic elements. But later on from 2012, I started to discover the scientific elements. Science. Then it's, mm. it's suddenly opening a new wide array for me that I now have really uh, tried to, 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 to pivot on it and use it in my business. Because if you know how to, to meld together the, 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 the scientific and the artistic elements, you could do a far better job. And guess who is doing that now? Hollywood is doing that already. Mm. They are already testing their stories. They get people into a theater, give them uh, a special headsets to wear. And they can tell which movie would succeed more, which movie would not succeed more. Oh, wow. Because of the impulses that we, we let go, our breath and uh, breathing and all of that. So they're taking advantage of that. And I think that as business people, we don't need too much. We don't need too much to, to be able to use that. We need just a little bit. And but I think that the science part of it helps sell it to the technical people who are resisting it. Maybe. That's true. That's uh, true. I've tried to make the point with uh, the example of, uh, like with, of Star Wars, like mm -hmm. starting out talking about stories, like just asking someone, could you finish this sentence? May the force, and I've done it in rooms of hundreds of people, yep. and there are millennials who were not even born when that movie came out <laughs> who will say, be with you, and they can finish the sentence. There you go. They, they could tell you the story of Star Wars and everything. Yep. Yep. And I just, I, I've used it before to make the point that I know it, it sticks in your brain, yep. but I, I don't think I, I didn't get the science behind it like you I did because I haven't read a hundred books on storytelling. <laughs> I've read a few, um, <laughs> but that's fascinating that the, the research is getting um, more into that. A lot of it is coming out now because of what they call the MRI machines mm -hmm. that can look into the human brain and see it real time. So there's a lot of information that is coming out in that area. And I've been consuming it from New Jersey to California to Minnesota, different, different. There's some institutions that are very, very big on uh, the scientific elements of storytelling. But what is actually happening which I hope that I, I'm still growing in the area too, is how can we as business people tell stories that create what I call an episodic moment? An episodic moment is a moment that is unforgettable. Mm. It's a moment that you almost experience it as though you were there. You almost feel like you were bitten by a snake. You never forget that, right? That right. becomes an episode. Or you see something so unique, something so magical, something so fine, so sublime that you never forget about it. And if you look at most of my somewhat, I, I would say I, I'm still growing, but if you look at most of my videos, I always try to introduce one tiny little surprise element. Why? Because there's some four elements that the human brain is um, fascinated by. Novelty, intrigue, uh, surprise, and specifics. And if you see most of my videos, I would so reach somewhere and I'll come up with a little instrument like this and I will surprise the audience because they're not expecting that. Why am I doing right. that? Because I'm trying to create an episodic moment that becomes unforgettable because of all the speakers that you've met in the world, of all the trainers that you've met in the world, how many have pulled out a harmonica live and played it? So you. What, I'm what I'm trying to do there <laughs> is create an episodic moment that becomes unforgettable. Initially, I got into this without knowing that there's a science behind it. But then later on, I realized that there is a huge science behind it yeah, that has to do with, you, with the memory formation. You knew something intuitively that you later found Discovered. the science behind it. That it, it almost reminds me of things that, like, you know, my grandmother would say, uh, eat garlic, it's good for you. And it's, ah, grandma doesn't know anything. And then 50 <laughs> years later, Harvard puts out a report that garlic is good for you. And there's all this research. And you go, huh, grandma just knew. <laughs> she, she just knew. That's right. She, but I think she, that's years of experience that trickled into us from various sources we didn't know why it made sense but it made sense for some reason that's very true that's very true some things we can feel them uh at a very subliminal level and then later on the science comes to prove it 
like I'm sure people like Einstein knew all along that the world wasn't flat, but it just took them some uh, took them a while longer to to prove it uh, conceptually to the world that it is it, it isn't flat, or maybe way way back before Einstein or uh, Isaac Newton. So, with with all this stuff with stories, you've talked about both art and science. Yeah. And so this, uh, it almost reminds me of like the nature nurture argument. Yeah. What is, what is your take on the role of those two? And, and do you find either one more important in storytelling, the art or the science, or are they just kind of inextricably married somehow? I would think that the, the nurture part is even more important. And to be honest, not all of us, are born with some specific qualities, but if we put in the time to go learn it, we become we become good at it. Like nobody's born an accountant, nobody's born uh, an actual an actually a scientist. <laughs> but you had to put in a lot of time to become uh, a, a, an accountant. Uh, Steve had to put in a lot of time to become uh, an actuary or insurance or financial executive. So I think with storytelling, whether we have a small inkling of um, a genetic <laughs> code of it, if we put in the time, we would grow. Uh, but that doesn't discount the fact that there's, uh, there's a, a nature part of it, which could be the scientific. Uh, I just look at what, what am I left with? Am I going to just give up if I don't have it? No. I, I, I studied math. I passed math. Was I really good at it? No. It, did it take me a lot of time? A lot of time. Mm. If I converted that time into studying something else, I think I would have done a lot better when I was writing my <laughs> hmm. exams. But I still passed it, but it took a lot of time. Could you so, tell us a little bit about maybe your rituals or habits as you go through creating the story? What do you, how do you go about doing that, Gideon? If you've got a specific audience you're going to be presenting to, and, and let's, let's use John's example earlier and say you've got a group of accountants that you're going to be presenting to, mm-hmm. um, What's your process or, or, or what, what, what do you go through? Tell us a little bit about that. Wow, that's a very, very fascinating question. Here's why it is such a deep question. Because if you choose the wrong story, you could end up on the wrong side of the river. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, you, you'll be standing there and they're looking like, who is that? What are you talking about? What is he talking about? What is he all about anyway? We, we don't know you. So um, I struggled through that, or I would say, yes, I've struggled through it, and I've also met a lot of people that kept asking me, so how do I determine which story is good, which story is not good? And I struggled to craft or to find a process that I could at least teach my clients how to use. And I came up with something called the DNA method, which is based on my uh, observation and learning from the, all, all the other gurus uh, out there. The DNA method simply says, if I'm going to speak with accountants, I should take a moment to ask myself, what are the things that keep them awake at night? I call them distressors. Ooh. Distressors, the things that are very, very distressing to them. Uh, second, the, the N stands for their needs. These are short term. What are the things that they want to have in the short term? And then the A stands for aspirations. What are the things that they want for themselves in the long term? And I use that, I put it side by side with Maslow's needs hierarchy. Mm. When I am speaking to a group, I look at it and say, okay, where are they relatively on the Maslow's needs hierarchy? So I try to identify stories and craft stories that reflect some of their distressors. And I will recraft stories just to make sure that they reflect their distressors. And they also reflect their needs short term and their aspirations long term. Why? Because then I am trying to speak the language that uh, they understand, the language that relates to their own daily struggles in life. Uh, I use an example that uh, I don't know if we just maybe a couple of seconds uh, of an Irish priest leaves from Ireland and goes to uh, Southern Africa to become a missionary. In Ireland, he speaks English, but he gets to Southern Africa, lives in the Kalahari Desert with the natives. 
and the natives are speaking a very different language. And by the time I met this Catholic priest, he had lived there for well over 12 years. And he told me that the language of the Bushmen is very, very difficult. He said he has not mastered, he has mastered a fair bit of the language, but he still struggles with the clicks. Have you heard about the guys that speak with, they can do that? Yeah. Yes. He said to me, there are 13 clicks. And to master the 13 clicks, it takes a lot of time. So my point being that if Father Steve in Botswana, if he doesn't use the language of the natives, the natives don't care. In other words, if I'm going to speak to the, to, to the accountants, if I don't speak the language, accountants wouldn't care much. But for me to be able to convince the natives, the bushmen that I care enough, I'm Father Steve. I have to find a way to convey the message and show that I care enough about them, even if I don't pronounce it very well, but at least I make an attempt. Now the natives are going to nod, they look forward, and they tended to like the priest more than they like their own local government. You know why? Because Father Steve made an effort to reach out to them on their terms. Whereas sometimes the government goes to give them food for Christmas. They leave it there, they dump it there, the bushmen don't want to eat it. Like, who cares about that? If food is coming to us from Father Steve, we eat it. If it's coming from the government, we don't want that. So I, I think that um, speaking to accountants, I'm going to look at their distressors, their needs, and their aspirations, and I'll craft a story that more or less uh, speaks to their, to their needs and to their aspirations. Well, I love the fact that you put it in an acronym because it makes it easier to, to remember. That's one of those little mnemonics. Yes, yes. And it's in training. the book. It's in the book, in the science of story selling too, which this I think book? you have a copy. Yes, 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 sir. Yes, sir. Tell, tell our audience how they can get this book. I'm sure you have it on Amazon. You have it on your website. Yes. Um, they can get it from storywarrior.us. Um, Story Warrior is one word, Story warrior.us and they also can get it from um, Amazon science of story selling however if you get it from storywarrior.us which is my website I'll send you an autograph copy I uh, and I was just going to ask take you care of, I take care of the postage it's going to be like $2.80 I'm going to absorb that so uh, I like to have that connection with someone uh, it, it, it just makes it uh, personable that I get to know somebody that cares about my ideas. So I'll prefer that. That means if, if, they, uh, listen, if your listeners want to get so it from for, me. So for you guys out there that are watching the video, I have my signed copy. So I strongly <laughs> encourage you to get your signed copy directly from his website. We'll put all oh, put the details. There's awesome. Steve's. See, these are <laughs> perks. You, these are perks when you get to meet these great people that we have on the show. <laughs> Thank you. Um, We'll put all these these little details. There's a lot of things that we'll come back later to okay. to do some cleanup on, on uh, like websites and specific names. I want to get the names of the mentors that you mentioned, uh, Shenton Singh, and we'll 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 come yep. back and we'll we'll get a lot of this stuff in the show notes because there was a lot of it that okay. we talked about kind of quickly, but I think mm -hmm. will be valuable for people to be able to go back and you know maybe Google some of these people, maybe do a little little. Yep more reading on those um okay. your dna thing i think is a great way i was going to ask you a question that that dna was an even better better answer than what i was the, the, whatever answer you would have gave to the question but the question was like a, a one thing question so i guess maybe I'll, I'll rephrase the question is when you meet people who are maybe a potential client or customer for your business yeah um what is, what is, in a nutshell, like what we might call in our business, like a, a, um, an elevator mm -hmm. story or your 30-second commercial for um, mm -hmm. how would they know if they need to hire you? Okay. So I define myself first as story warrior. And that tends to uh, get some people leaning forward and say, what's a story warrior? Who is a story warrior? And then I get to explain that a story warrior is someone who fights and wins business battles without firing a shot. I like that. What they do, they use the leverage of power of story in fighting. Why? Because story is non-invasive. Story is polite. 
Story is respectable. Story legitimizes. Story allows you to share your values and virtues in a way that respects the other person. So story warrior. So the people that I coach, I also help them to identify who are you in two words. So in two words, I'm the story warrior. And I help my clients because if you say, just do it, who is that? Nike. Nike. <laughs> right. means Nike wants to tell you a story about the importance of just doing it. They have occupied that real estate. Nobody else can take it from them. I'll be a clown if I go out there and start projecting myself as the just do it guy. Nobody cares. But for each and every one of us, we need to find one or two words that succinctly describe us. That is the genesis of our story. Then we move on from there to see what kind of archetype are you. And we get to define your story archetype. And in my case, I am very much an eternal optimist. So my stories have to exude optimism. They have to exude a, a, a positivity about tomorrow because that's what took me out of a very, very dire circumstances in Africa. I believe that going somewhere was going to improve my life. I had no guarantee that I was going to succeed anywhere. When I left home with 1,200 uh, travelers, uh, 1200 travelers checks, I had no guarantee. I didn't know anybody. And the rest, God just kept opening the door, one person to the next and so on. So I identify a story warrior. Then the next thing is, what does story warrior do? I help small businesses tell transformational stories that generate buzz and business. Why buzz? Because he who gets the buzz gets the bees. Here's why. The world is noisy. The world is crowded. The world is uh, confusing. We don't know who to follow. But the guy that comes up with a sharp, clean-cut message or a message that at least has a clear narrative, we tend to look up to them and they, they almost come across like they know what is happening. Most of us, we don't know what's happening, but the guy that comes or conjures a story that tells us what is going on is the one that we all turn and look at them. And sooner than later, we start to lean forward to them. We start to listen more to them. And that's how they're taking us on a journey. Not because they're smarter than us, but because they have a story. They are like the lion. There's an African saying that says, uh, that they, they, until the lion learns to tell his story, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. Oh. Unfortunately, all of us are like that lion. We're the king of the jungle, but we don't know how to tell our story. The hunter, in the meantime, goes back and tells every villager that they were able to kill us. No, the hunter can't kill a lion. The lion is stronger than the, 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 the hunter, but unfortunately, the lion doesn't tell his story. So my point is, the story warrior helps people to reclaim the lion that is in them, to reclaim... The, the, the glory of all the hard work that they put into their professional fields, what is accounting, what is uh, financial services, we need to reclaim that glory and tell our story because if we don't do that, the hunter is going to do that. The hunter is going to eat our breakfast, going to eat our lunch, and will be happy to eat our dinner. And maybe sometimes wants to capture our young little ones, go and put in his backyard and tell the world that he's stronger than the lion. No, he's not stronger than the lion. So, um, I tend to use that that uh, story warrior and transformational piece to generate a buzz, generate a beast, because I believe that if we do a good job of telling, the world, the village starts to listen now to the lion and not always to the, the uh, 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 hunter, because at the end of the day, the lion is stronger than the, than, than the hunter. <laughs> That's great, man. <laughs> Thank well. You. I want to respect your time. So we're, we're about at the one hour mark. Thank you. So um, let's tell everybody how they can find you. How do they get a hold of you? Whether, whether the best way is in social media, your website, what's the best way for people to find you and get in touch with you so you can help them? If they really want to get in touch with me, they should get in touch with uh, Mr. John Sanchez. <laughs> Mr. Steve Kasky? Okay, I'm joking. Yes. Come on, come on. Give us, I know they, give us your, your info, through, man. If they get through you guys, they'll get to me. But otherwise, if they want to look for me virtually, they can go to storywarrior.us. Okay. And my LinkedIn profile is www.linkedin slash Gideon2F. And I have a Twitter handle. I don't quite uh, use a lot of Twitter. I use uh, Gideon2F and StoryWarrior1. Okay. On Twitter at Story Warrior One and at Gideon Two F. 
And um, I will provide the link to you so that it becomes a little easier. And my YouTube channel, I'm launching my YouTube channel in the next couple of days. And I'm going to be flooding the world with YouTube uh, videos on little segments of how to improve one area of storytelling or the other. Beautiful. But I, I, I'm just okay. so glad, so, so grateful that you made me the first guest. And I, I feel very humble. Uh, how about, uh, are you on Instagram? <laughs> Instagram, I have Instagram Mokwai2 on Instagram, but... I, I'm not very active on, on Instagram yet, uh, or okay. as I would like to be, yeah. <laughs> okay. Mukwai2, M-U-K-W-A-I-2. Okay, and we'll put, it, we'll put all this stuff in the show notes so that okay. for the people that are listening, they don't have to take notes. It'll, right. it'll, be, it'll be their form. We'll make it easy for them. That's, that's right. <laughs> okay. Um, if there was one last thing, uh, if, if you had one message that you could get out there to business people who you know for sure would benefit from what you do, if there's only one message that you could get them in just a, a sentence or two, what, what might that be? It would be that you should dare to tell your story. Hmm. Dare to tell your story because you never know whom your story would touch, encourage, or inspire. Awesome. That's never a great... Know. Great way to end the fantastic end the episode, Thank man. Thank you hey. so much, gentlemen. Thank you so much for the work you're doing, and I, I feel blessed. And uh, I hope that this this will grow uh, grow grow to to all the far corners of the world because it's good work you're doing. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time, man, and for being you and telling all the stories that you tell. <laughs> thank you. I always My enjoy pleasure. a conversation with you, Gideon. Thanks so much. My pleasure. We'll-